This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. And I'm Matt Davis. Hey Matt, how you doing, man? I'm doing quite fine. Excellent. Good to hear. Uh, I was just, you just stumbled upon me uh, checking out some of our amazing new iTunes reviews and our Twitter followers and Facebook likes. And all I can say is I, I just want to thank everyone that's been uh, then listening and uh, appreciating the show. Yeah, the response has been tremendous. And we would love if you guys kept sharing, telling a friend, and leave us more reviews. It really helps us out. So with one hand, you're checking the iTunes charts, but with the other hand, you have a, is that like an ice water bucket? Like, yeah, you're right. Yeah. My hand's just been sitting in this, this bucket of ice for the last couple hours. Yeah. I'm a little worried about you. I don't know if you should be doing that. It's, it's definitely not fun and it is not, it's not pleasant. And the the reason I'm doing it, you probably were going to ask me. I was going to ask you, but you can just go ahead and tell me. I'll just tell you uh, because I I was, that was going to be my next guess is what you'd asked. I'm doing this because it's extremely painful. Okay, why would you want to put yourself in a state of pain? I'm doing this because it turns out the guest that I spoke with this week is a guy who studies pain, tries to figure out what it's all about. So I wanted to know what it's all about. Ah, so you just want to get in the mindset of the the subject matter of the interview. Yes. I probably should have just like done some research on it. But yeah, there's a Wikipedia page on pain. <sighs> you didn't have to actually put yourself in pain. Well... You know, live and learn. Live and learn. I'm going to take it out of the water now. Ooh, okay. Actually, that looks kind of fun. Can I put my hand in there? Go go right ahead. All right. Here I go. Okay. Well, while, you, while you're doing that and getting used to it, uh, let me tell you a little bit more about the, uh, the person that I interviewed today. So I spoke with Dr. Tor Wager, and he is a neuroscientist at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And his lab has been interested in pain and trying to figure out really what is pain and where is it in the brain. And especially he would like to figure out, is there a way that we could actually detect pain better in the brain than ways that we currently have now? That seems like an interesting problem because what pain is is not so obvious. It's not like a light stimulus. It's not like a sound stimulus, which are easily quantified in uh, physical terms, but pain is this sort of, it seems illusory. It's not easy to really describe what it is. We can say we have all experienced it. We could tell you when something is painful or when it's not, but at the end of the day, what exactly it is has been really difficult for scientists to try to figure out. We would like to develop ways to reduce pain, obviously, because it's not a, it's not a pleasant experience for anyone. So we're trying to figure out what are treatments that work and we would like to say, hey, that reduces the pain. But again, like I said, what is pain? We don't know how to measure it. There's not really super good objective measures of pain. And you can look at pupil dilation or heart rate. Those track pain, but there still isn't a really good measure of pain. And like we said, it's probably somewhere in the brain, right? If it's a psychological process. So can we look maybe in the brain and try to like find out a readout that would be a better tracker of actual pain? I have a feeling that we're going to be talking about fMRI soon. You got it. That's exactly right. 
So what Dr. Wager has been trying to do is by using, like you said, fMRI, which again is just a fancy term for a brain scanner. We can put a person into this machine. It will measure sort of activity levels, a blood flowing to the brain, which is then sort of an indirect measure of brain activity. And then we can look and say, okay, this brain region correlates maybe well with the amount of pain that they are experiencing. And then what they can do is actually use these really fancy machine learning techniques, and they can sort of teach a computer to predict based on the brain activity how much pain they're feeling and what level of pain they're experiencing physically. And then they can do cool things like go back and correlate that to things like imagined pain or maybe the pain of a breakup or some kind of other psychological type of pain. That sounds really compelling. I'd love to get to the interview. Well, let's get to the interview. Dr. Wager, take us away. Listeners, don't forget, perk up them cochlea. Can, can I give it a shot? I'm going to... Uh, are you sure you're ready? I, I don't know. I'm going to try. All right, guys. Church up them poke... Dang it! I knew this was a disaster. <laughs> Ice bucket out. What are some of the big questions right now that your lab addresses? Well, one of the things I've been interested in for years is in how we, as in we deploying our own thoughts, can regulate our, our emotional states, can regulate pain, can regulate our physiological responses. So what can we do with our minds to affect our emotions and our brains and our bodies? Uh, and part of that is, you know, about strategies. What can you do in terms of deploying thought? And part of it is about the context. What are the different elements of the world around you that can influence what happens to you? So um, maybe it's the social context. You know, if you're if you're giving birth to a child, then having a supportive person there holding your hand and talking you through it is really helpful. <laughs> that can reduce labor time by almost half sometimes and really benefit other objective measures of the mom's outcome and the baby's outcome. So how does that kind of thing happen? Yeah, how do we brain? Yeah. How is yeah, how do mental states change our physiology and is there a particular one in, that you that your lab focuses on of these different kinds of ways in which our brain can affect our our body? We started studying placebo effects cuz it's an example of something that isn't real physically or pharmacologically treatment, but it really can have a profound impact in some cases across multiple clinical disorders. Yeah, this is a pretty profound like phenomenon, right? Like it's been shown, right, that placebo works really well. That's my understanding, at least. It can, it can. And so we've been you know exploring the boundaries of when it works and when it doesn't work and why. And people think it's a people sometimes think of it as something that can't have any effect by definition. And that's true. It can't have any direct pharmacological effect by definition, but a placebo can strongly affect the way you think about your treatment. <laughs> so it can affect your state of mind, your emotional responses, the way you expect a benefit or, or dread <laughs> the future. What would you say to someone that would say that if they think they're getting better, isn't that the same thing as getting better? 
if they're if the placebo works in the sense that they are perceiving themselves to be getting better is there any philosophical or fundamental difference to that right no, not all the time right so sometimes you can think you're getting better and that's very temporary right so you might be tempted to bias your judgments if somebody who really care about impressing asks you about how you're doing and you want to be doing better you say yeah i'm doing better and you introspect and maybe i'm yeah maybe i'm doing better but really there's nothing fundamentally changing right and so that's a sort of shallow kind of improvement uh and so i think what we're after in part is measures of what counts as a deeper improvement how do we separate the the superficial stuff from the deeper stuff and one way of doing that is looking at your physiology can we define physiological outcomes that are disease relevant uh, or pain relevant if we're studying pain that we can test for influences of placebo and other kinds of context another kind of direction is um looking at long-term behaviors which is something we're really interested in doing because something might not affect your physiology very much but it might have a really profound effect on how you make choices in life so with pain for example you know it may not if you have back pain and you respond to a treatment like a placebo treatment it may not be having much of an impact on what's happening in your spine but it might have a big impact on whether you go out how you sleep whether you feel anxious when you're trying to go to sleep and whether you anticipate the future in a positive way and that can change your social relationships and that can snowball so you know there's multiple ways of looking at outcomes that count but i think that's kind of a core mission Okay. And we've been focusing a lot on brain systems and trying to define um, outcomes in the brain and also mechanisms by which the context influences those outcomes. Awesome. Um so we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh if you don't mind, can we take a step back go back to kind of the beginning and uh, could you tell us where you grew up and what, what your parents did or kind of the structure of your family? Sure. Um I grew up in first in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. So my parents moved there so that we could all ski. Oh really? <laughs> when I was 2. <laughs> Did you like? Yeah. And so I Wait, you were skiing at 2? Probably. I, I was skiing at 2. I had little blue skis. Um, yeah. <laughs> and Yeah, it was great. So it was just it Kids was are like fearless, right? You could just like push them down. They are fearless. Yes. And, and yeah, and you know, I, I grew up it was a beautiful natural environment. So we grew up doing lots of outdoor activities. My mom was an artist, my dad was an airline pilot. So we could live in Wyoming and then he could commute to work in LA, which was <laughs> hard, but he did it for years. And yeah, it was um not a very high pressure environment to grow up in <laughs> academically. I think my parents are always just um wanted to present options for my brother and I to do whatever we wanted to do, you know. Yeah. What is you what was your did you have interests early on or what did you think you wanted to be like at that age? I don't know. I was a funny kid. I read like crazy. Um so I really did. My mom brought home a stack of books every week and I I read all of them. And, and so it was just really I was really into that. I was very into um, Do you have any imaginary uh, worlds? Okay. <laughs> I think, you know, fantasy, um, fantasy or or just any fiction yeah, or all kinds all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Do you have any Literally. like any really good memories of particular or things that affected you? Well, lots of them. Now I'm actually um buying some of my favorite series. I'm reading them to my kids every night. Yeah. So I read to them for probably about an hour a night and uh, nice. it's funny to revisit these books as adults. Yeah. But um 
but I think that's what was always really important to me. So I loved, um, I loved poetry uh, as a kid. I wrote poetry. I loved lasers. <laughs> if I hadn't been a neuroscientist, I would have um, maybe done something with lasers. Poet, you know, laser. yeah, yeah. Or, or also solar energy. So, like very early on, I think it was the it was the 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 days in which you know kids were starting to be exposed to ideas about environmental damage and renewable resources. And so I remember picking up on that really early and being really fascinated with, with solar do you think, power. Do you think being in Wyoming, kind of a big, open, very natural setting affected you in that way? or I don't know. I think it, I think it, was, it was great because I actually was – and another thing about me early on is I always pushed myself so hard. Like I, was, I was a perfectionist, and so this was a huge, in some ways, obstacle for me. But so I was always hyper-motivated myself. So I've learned across the years to, it's it's okay, <laughs> you know, to not um, be good at things sometimes and to be okay with that. And that actually lets me be better at things, you know, I think, because I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to just be where I am, <laughs> you know? And fail and be okay yes. with that. Know the stuff I know and not know the stuff I don't know, yeah. you know? <laughs> Sorry, I don't know. <laughs> you know, and that's, yeah, that's, that's helpful. So I think that's a, you know. That's important. I actually see a lot of people in, in academia, you know, if you, if you don't feel like you can ask the questions, then it's harder to learn, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. I guess you sometimes have to feel like an amateur and be okay with that. And I would say there's, if, if you're crippled in the fact that you say, I'm not good at this, I'm not going to even try, you'll shoot yourself in the foot right away. Yeah. There's a, there's a philosophy, I think, from Taoism, called, I think, called the uncarved block. That's from my early days as a kid. Uh, I'll right? just say the Tao Te Ching is literally my favorite book. Ah. It's like the thing that changed me like in college the most. I, I, I very much was confused about how I thought about the world and the Tao is like just fit in with exactly the way I kind of wanted to see the world and how I thought oh, I could cool. actually sort of be a better person. Wow. Uh, so you yeah. get it, the uncarved block. Yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's the idea of yeah, being, being a beginner at things all the time. It, it, it's about being childlike, being yeah. very letting things happen and not having expectations. There's a really good like one of the major teachings is to to do nothing, but very yeah. but that's different than just not doing anything. You're you are actually actively doing nothing or not letting things ha affect you or uh, think. It's kind of in a meditative way, you know. Uh, that yeah. meditation is incredibly difficult, right? You it's a very active process to not think about something. I'm not very good at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I like that idea of, of being open. I think some of the people I admire a lot are very open to new things and new directions. You know, I don't know if I'm always like that, but uh, at least it's a goal. <laughs> right? yeah, that's how I feel too. <laughs> yeah. And to keep, keep learning. I think that's really yeah. important. So Let's get to maybe like high school or college type area level. Was this, did you have a direction or some sort of things that at, the, at that time you were thinking you wanted to do? Oh, yeah. Or just experiencing it? <laughs> well, the funny thing I think is, is I think this career path started for me probably about fourth grade. Okay. So I was in the gifted and talented class and we did a lot of extra educational stuff about the brain and intelligence and what it was. And there's a lot of stuff about sort of atypical kinds of intelligence you know, so Einstein's IQ was reportedly low. Abraham Lincoln's IQ was very average, right? So it doesn't mean that, you know, having a high IQ doesn't necessarily mean much. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, right? Yeah. So that was good. And then we we learned about the brain. And, and I remember actually being fascinated with these case reports of um, 
really about the emotional brain. You know, a, a guy who came back from the war, he had a bombshell lodged in his thalamus or hypothalamus. He turned his head one way, he'd laugh, and the other way, he'd cry. And that always stuck out, you know, to me, and I remembered it. And then I went on and just did different stuff, you know. So I was interested in all kinds of, of different things, you know, in high school and college. And I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I majored in music. Oh, really? After switching from philosophy and physics, because I was interested in consciousness. Yeah. Well, you know, what, what music or did you... Uh, I was a uh, theory composition. Oh, okay. So I, I composed music the whole time in, in, in college. And, you know, it turns out that's actually a hard thing to do. And it's, it's hard <laughs> in part because there are these two different traditions that have merged together and, and cra are crashing together. And one tradition is aesthetic, like pop music, the stuff you'd like. So I like simple melodies. I would like try to write some kind of Arabic sounding melody. It sounded great to me, you know. And then my music professor would say, well, are you have to develop it, you know, where's the theory, <laughs> right? And so then okay. you would fill in these complicated harmonies and try to have some intellectual progression and it would come back and and it would sound like junk, <laughs> you know? So then the professor who's working with said, you know, all right, well, it's, I can see the development, but, but it bad. make it sound like music, <laughs> you know? So it needed and, to have both. That's like, is that, <clears throat> did he try to say you need to have both, you know, pleasantly sounding, but then also has some sort of theoretical or like musical backbone? Exactly. It's got to be, you know, there's an intellectual structure for yeah. what counts as, as quality, you know, in an academic environment. And that's yeah. different than what sounds good. And so what you know, he, the way he described it was, um, was as the rhythm of head and heart. And, and that's a great concept that I've loved ever since, right? So there's this, you know, your heart is this motivational engagement that what, what feels good to you, what's fun, you know, and then the head part is taking that and using that as the engine and developing it, mm -hmm. right? And sort of achieving this rhythm of head and heart is, you know, not an easy thing to do. I think it's a work in progress, but I think... That sounds to me like an ideal way to approach science. Do you have any favorite composers? Was this like, by the way, like orchestral or choral or piano or that you were composing? Oh, that's composing. Yeah. So, well, so my favorite composer as a kid was um, Johann Sebastian Bach. Yeah. Always. Um, yeah. For whatever reason. Just, he just, just hits you hits you right in the heart yeah. for me in the heart, basically. So I was a weird kid because I actually walked around with a Walkman, you know, tape and and headphones and I brought them to school and I would listen to Bach on the headphones. Yeah. So and everyone all the kids were like, What is that? <laughs> you know? And I said, It's That's very Bach. intellectual. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So it was yeah, I definitely um I definitely sort of isolated myself from <laughs> from most kids early on. And then I had to sort of learn how to I don't know, relate, you know? So that was that was, you know, a, yeah, important part of my education was just how to you know, relax about some of that stuff, <laughs> I think, you know, and, and, but still keep the good, keep the good parts. Right? Yeah. How do you feel about avant-garde and atonal type music that doesn't sound good, but maybe hyper intellectual or hyper kind of like progressive? I think it represents the divorce of intellectual music from aesthetics. <laughs> and I think that it's, I actually think it's, uh, symptomatic of um, other things that are happening in art and other areas where there's a priority on being uh, being new and being different in some way and and really I think it's I think it's the sort of opposite of the rhythm of head and heart it's the separation of head and heart you know I mean I don't I don't judge it I think a lot of it's really interesting but I think that I 
I believe in a sort of natural aesthetics personally. So I believe in a grounding in that. <laughs> That's just me, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I don't know. I would I would compose um I guess you'd call it kind of neo romantic, mm-hmm. you know, relatively simple melodies I like. Yeah. Um with uh with with harmony and lead and contrapuntal or all that type of <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. I haven't composed in years though. Once I once I started grad school, I kind of found my way into neuroscience. Okay, and, yeah. You how, know, did, how did that happen? Yeah. So you got it did you get a degree in music composition? I did, yeah, but I, I, I always have you know, I have a a pretty terrible ear. And so, and I knew, I, you know, I came to believe a couple things, you know, one is that there really is something to innate ability or, or, or ability to develop early in life, right? So some things I'm going to be good at, some things I'm just not going to be good at. So I learned two things really, uh, principles. And one is to, to work hard, you know, cause I worked really hard in music to be mediocre, <laughs> I would say. You know, and that was good for me. <laughs> it's great. And then, and then the other thing as I, I learned is you should swim downstream. You know, play to your strengths. Yes, play to your strengths. Don't don't try to to do something that you know where the deck is really stacked against you. If you have options to do something that you love, that you know that that capitalize on what you're relatively good at. So that was my philosophy after college, which led me to not go on in music, um, and essentially to to do extra. Courses actually graduated. I didn't know what I wanted to do even after I graduated. So I was not very tracked. And I went to um, Nepal and then uh, to India. And my goal was to learn yoga because I've been doing yoga all through college. And my, my goal then was to, to learn something that I could teach basically and to, to learn, you know, learn yoga there for some indefinite period of time. And then eventually I, would, I could teach that to people. I think I thought it would be helpful. And so, and I went to India, and and um, I started even when I was traveling around, getting really excited about studying psychology in the brain. And there was one point where I was hiking through Nepal, and I remember this feeling of just not deciding what I wanted to do with my life. And so all these doors were sort of open, but I wasn't walking through any of them. Right? I was this postgraduate, no job, you know, kind of guy. And I actually got a fever at some point on this trail in Nepal on the Annapurna circuit, and I stayed behind my friends and spent an entire day with a fever just sitting there drinking tea, you know, and trying to wait it out. And so it was partly this fever just getting over illness, but it was partly this confrontation with this sort of crisis in my life that I wasn't choosing anything. And I I felt this pressure to choose, (laughs) you know, to to do something. And that's when I got the idea. I got really excited about going back to the States and becoming a, a, a psychologist or a neuroscientist, yeah, you know, and pursuing that and just doing whatever it took. Um, to make that happen that reminds me of the like the buddha like this it sits under a tree right for like a certain amount of time and then comes out of it like i think maybe that should be a prescription you just have to go home and you can't do anything you just have to drink tea for one day (laughs) and see what happens yeah (laughs) you know i actually it's funny because i really believed strongly in the symbolic value of that too i mean it could have just been like me being sick this really you know your brain was horrible Right. But, but I saw this as, you know, tied in with the story of my life. So I was making meaning out of it in some sense. Right. Yeah. Not, not deliberately maybe, but well, that's, but how yeah. all of, that's how all of our experiences are. Right. We were experiencing it and then we tell ourselves <laughs> what that <laughs> right. means. Yeah. So, so it was this opportunity, you know, and then I came back to the University of Colorado and I just figured I'll do whatever it takes, you know, to get into grad school. And I started, um, 
you know, I looked at these books and the books all say, what do you need? You need statistics and research experience. So like, okay. So I, you know, I went to see you and I started taking classes and my first day in statistics class over the summer, you know, check, right? The TA was uh, the guy, Dave Redinger, who's still in the field, teaches psychology. And he's the TA. He stands up in front of the class and says, well, who, uh, we're looking for research assistants. I'm like, oh, check. <laughs> you know, so I raise my hand. There we go. To you know? kill two birds with one stone right. with that. <laughs> anyway, so I just, you know, but it's, it's funny because I really, I was just, just thought I'm just going to do whatever it takes for as long as it takes until I have the background that I need to do this. And, and after that, I, you know, I kind of dedicated myself really full time for about a year and a half. And things happened much faster than I thought. So after that year, I applied to grad school and I didn't yeah. think I was going to get in. And I did, <laughs> you know. And uh, so things kind of just opened up. In that way, awesome. and then and then it went to Michigan, and 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 that was the new path where I gave up all my other hobbies <laughs> yeah, to get to grad school. I really did, it. yeah. They fell away <laughs> gradually. Yeah, yeah. You, know? you find that <laughs> I'm finding that yeah. out too. I'm still trying to get them back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, can you talk about what you studied in Michigan? Maybe some. What were some of the sort of things you took away from your graduate experience? Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess I guess the philosophy. You know, I, I studied neuroimaging and fMRI and um, control of attention or tra- and training. So I did these studies of the Stroop task in part, and we did training studies and imaging studies of those. Can you remind me what the Stroop and task is? Yeah, the Stroop task is this. It's, it's one of the most well-studied tasks in psychology, but it's one in which you see words that are printed in an ink color and the word might be blue and the ink color is red That's right. and you're supposed to name the ink color but everybody who can read automatically reads the word and so then there's some um, psychomotor conflict essentially and you're slow <laughs> you know yeah uh and, and so you know that's been a very productive you know really thousands of papers yeah. kind of paradigm but you know and i got into it because I, I really wanted to to study Cognitive control. I'm I'm still interested in that, but I guess I I started you know evolving in the ways that I, I I thought about control and what you're controlling, right? So then I started being interested in controlling pain and emotion okay. uh, instead of controlling reaction time to words, essentially. But I think the philosophy in grad school that I had, and I know my friends did, was to really get a rigorous education and learn the skills, like learn research design, learn statistics, learn the methods you know, and make progress in that. And then you can apply them later to, you know, new questions that come down the line or maybe old questions that you always wanted to ask, but that were, were too, uh, too fringy, <laughs> you know, to go after, right? Yeah. Once, once you get once you're having independence, right? You like start. placebo effects. You yeah. Know? Okay. <laughs> so that's cool though. I like the idea of thinking like this is a training ground. Grad school seems to be like a place that's where you should really get into the trenches, get a very solid base, get a group of people maybe that you can surround yourself with that motivate you and inspire you. And then, and then finally take it to maybe the places you want to go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so where's the next step after graduate? So you were setting like uh, reaction yeah. times to, to uh, that type of process. In part. And, and early on, I actually started studying emotion and imaging and yeah. studying placebo effects even. Oh, really? Um, even in grad school? Yeah. Did you have to convince your, so, your boss to do that or was it a... Well, it was serendipitous, you know. So, so the next place I went was Columbia University. So I got a faculty job there. Sometimes people in psychology of what I expected, but it was, was a terrific, you know, job opportunity. And, you know, to back up from that, my, my graduate training, I had 
really a couple lines of research. And one, and it ended up being about attention shifting, control of attention in the brain. So I did a series of studies on that. And that was, you know, it's interesting work, I thought, and sort of solid work. I wouldn't say it's revolutionary, <laughs> you know. And, and then the other line of work was this work on placebo effects that I was just really interested in, but I never thought was going to pan out. It was just sort of a side project. And the way I got into it was I didn't have to convince my advisor, actually. Um, there was this this group of people, of faculty, have been meeting for years from across the country called the Mind, Brain, Body, and Health Group. It was led by this guy, Bob Rose, who did stress physiology back in, you know, Vietnam, helicopter pilots. And then a group of, a really a kind of excellent group of cognitive neuroscientists, including my advisor, Ed Smith, and Richie Davidson, and Jonathan Cohen, and Steve Coslin, um, and other people had come and joined in, in, in various points during this history of this group. And the mission was to look at brain and body processes and sort of put the brain back into biomedicine, right, before I joined. And then so my advisor, Ed, comes to me one day. He's like, Tor, I know you're into this mind-body stuff. And I said, how do you know? I don't know. I never, you know, I never told you. You must but, have come off. Um, yeah, I must have come off like that. Are you, do, are you doing yoga like, one well, day in the... You know, yeah. <laughs> I've been part of this group and we, you know, and we finally got a little bit of money to actually do some experiments. And so what do you think about doing a, a placebo experiment? And so I said, that sounds really interesting. I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> but, you know, we we designed it together and, you know, worked through it. And I went to Princeton to, to run a version of it there and start that off and then came back to Michigan and ran another study. And so this ended up being, um, you know, I, it was a placebo analgesia and it ended up it ended up working out and it was always kind of amazed me because I really didn't think that people's pain was going to be shaped by uh, just telling them that they were getting a fake drug. And, um, and, and it was, and then the brain results worked out really well yeah. too. Um, what were those? Could you give us a little summary? Yeah, I, I, I can. And, and um, so this, this ended up being published in um, 2004 in science and it was two papers, you know, two, two studies side by side. Mm -hmm. And the basic story was um, when we give people a, a placebo analgesic, so it's a fake cream, and with various kinds of appropriate controls that I could tell you about. Um, but basically, if you can give people a fake cream, that causes a reduction in the pain they report, and it causes a reduction in brain areas that we associate with pain processing. Mm -hmm. The anterior cingulate, anterior insula, thalamus uh, are the main areas. And, and, it, and it activates prefrontal cortical circuits and it activates brain stem circuits like the periaqueductal gray in the midbrain that are associated with essentially generation and maintenance of context information and then uh, pain control. <laughs> okay, so, it, so this, was this the first neural evidence of placebo? It was the first study to really show decreases in pain-related processing and the first study to show sort of increases in potential mechanisms that are linked to analgesia. Mm -hmm. So Predrag Petrovic actually did the first placebo study in, with brain imaging, also in science, where they looked at overlap between a, getting a placebo and getting a real drug. Yeah. <laughs> One of the stories was this increases in the medial prefrontal cortex. Yeah, would that both, be the, oh, would you know, be, okay. But yeah, so I think, I think our study was, was the first study, you know, across these two experiments to really look at you know, what's activated in anticipation of the sort of activation of the mechanisms bef right before you get the pain, and then and then what are the consequences yeah. during pain? <laughs> are, there, are there pretty overlapping, or is there anything independent about placebo versus an actual painkiller? Well, that's been an evolving story, right? So like, like many things, if you start comparing similarities and differences, you can find both. 
depends on how you look, (laughs) you know? So, you know, at first, first blush, there might be a lot of overlap in certain ways. So there's activation of the prefrontal cortex when you're getting a opiate drug. You know, we still don't know what really that means in terms of, of pain control or other kinds of processes. And that's true when you get a placebo as well. And they both involve, broadly speaking, similar neurochemical systems. So we and other people have found evidence that if you take that placebo, then your brain releases endogenous opioids, which are natural painkillers and involved in decision and mood in other ways as well. Um, um, And and that's the basic mechanism by which real, many kinds of real drugs work, like morphine is an opiate, you know. Um, And so it turns out maybe both both, uh, opiate drugs and placebos involve the dopamine system in certain ways under certain circumstances and other neurochemical systems too. So there's a lot of similarities at that this very, very broad level, you know, but, you know, we did a study published a couple of years ago now in 2012, where we really tried to look in more detail at the similarity in the mechanisms. And we find that they were quite different. <laughs> Is this when you so, break it down somehow to a finer level of detail? Yeah, right. So, so in this case, what we did is, is we we gave a real drug, remifentanil, which is an opiate, and we gave a placebo, and we crossed the two. So sometimes people got the real drug, and they and they didn't know they were getting it. <laughs> sometimes they, they thought they were getting it. And sometimes people got a placebo, and they thought they were getting it. <laughs> and, and sometimes they didn't. And so um, basically across, I guess, a couple of papers, uh, we can then assess whether the drug effects go side by side with the placebo effects, they're additive, or whether they, the, the, the magnitude of the drug effect is really influenced by the placebo, you know. And they were additive. So there's a placebo effect, there's a drug effect, you can get both. Yeah. The, the magnitude of one doesn't depend on the magnitude of the other one. And if we look at the, the brain patterns, you know, the, the things that were related to placebo analgesia in that study were really about the prefrontal cortex in part and the, and, and the striatum. And so that these are these systems and then the correlates of the drug effects were were different you know how are you thinking about how the prefrontal cortex is how it's regulating pain perception yeah the problem with the prefrontal cortex is that it's such a big area of real estate it can do so many different things right so uh you know i think in the placebo case it's probably important for generating the the context and the, the thoughts, you know. So this is sort of indirect evidence, but Fabrizio Benedetti is a researcher. He did a lot of placebo work, and he did a study with Alzheimer's patients. They don't show placebo effects, and they also have prefrontal atrophy, yeah. <laughs> right? So if you can't maintain the context, you don't show placebo effects. Um, a couple of other groups have stimulated the prefrontal cortex and found enhancements of or, or blockade of placebo analgesia. And so that's another clue that the prefrontal cortex is probably involved in generating this sort of context information. And I actually think now that basically our brain is wired to have mechanisms by which what we think of the whole situation represented in the prefrontal cortex for starters, you know, and is connected to four brain systems like the ventral striatum. Um, and brainstem systems like the, the PAG and other nuclei in the brainstem in ways that shape experiences, shape lots of experiences. So, so I think the mechanism behind placebo effects, very broadly speaking, is the same as, in some sense, as if, you know, a man with a gun burst into the room and all of our hearts would start racing and we, our pupils would dilate and we would, you know, we would activate. And, and that's because there's this perception of the, 
the context and the meaning. Whereas you know? if you see that in a movie or something, you may or may not have that exactly. same reaction, right? Exactly. And, and, and even just, just knowing the conceptual knowledge that, that there's a surprise birthday party where this is a gag that's being played and you know this is going to happen. Not surprised right? anymore. You're not going to respond the same way, you know. So I think our brains really contextualize lots of things. And so this idea of pain control by your expectations, you know, with which is implemented in prefrontal striatal brainstem circuits <laughs> is, is, you know, just an example of the kinds of regulation of pain and physiology and other kinds of, of perceptions that happens all the time. There's been a lot of problems trying to figure out where the actual location of pain exists in the brain. How is it represented? Could you say what your lab is doing to sort of address this problem and where you guys are going uh, in the future now? Yeah, one thing I'm really excited about now is, you know, like I said, I've been really interested in all kinds of self-regulation and regulation by beliefs and expectations and thoughts. Um, but to study those things, we need to understand what's being regulated. And so one thing I'm really excited about is developing measures of brain activity that are strongly linked to pain, to emotional distress, <laughs> to rejection or to sadness, or even to positive things like empathy or feeling warm and fuzzy toward other people, right? So feeling tender toward people and wanting to help them, you know, the good and bad things. And the, those things are there aren't very good outcome measures that are markers for those things. So for example, with pain, you can measure people's pupil dilation. You can measure objective things like that. Uh, you can measure their skin connectance, but none of those things is, is pain. So they're all only moderately sort of coupled with pain. And to, to really get an objective handle on, you know, how deep are placebo effects going in the brain <laughs> in terms of pain processing, we have to have better markers for the neural systems that contribute to pain at different levels of the neuraxis in the brainstem, in the in the subcortex, in the cortex, maybe across all of them. So where's the pain? Yeah. So that's one thing that we've been working on. So we've been using machine learning algorithms to identify patterns that are predictive of, sensitive and specific to certain kinds of, of outcomes like pain. Uh, when we have those, we can then go back and test placebo effects in a more rigorous way. And, and so I'm really excited about that process. So we're defining outcomes related to, to pain and rejection and pain empathy uh, and other kinds of emotional distress. And then we can go back and say, well, what happens when you try to self-regulate, right? What happens when you get a placebo? What happens when you do a mindfulness meditation, right? And that affects your pain. Well, does it affect the brain signatures for pain in a way that we expect? Uh, Will that help you evaluate the effectiveness of it and whether it's somehow different or the same. Yeah, that helps us evaluate in a more rigorous way whether those treatments are really working. But even deeper than that, it also gives us ideas about maybe multiple targets for pain. So we have a recent study which just um, was published this year, 2015 in PLOS Biology. And the idea is we have this pain signature and it tracks pain really well. Uh, and then we have people regulate the pain up and down. Imagine it's burning, bubbling, horrible, right? Beat the test, turn it up. And then in other times, we ask people to turn it down. Imagine it's a warm blanket on a cool day. You know, it's not so bad. And You're asking these participants to just minimize the pain. Command. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So you I mean, either maximize or minimize the pain in different mm -hmm. different uh, cases. Okay. And 
Then we can ask, you know, what happens to their pain? It goes up and down. What happens to this brain signature for pain? Nothing. There's no effect. Mm. So that is exciting because <laughs> <laughs> it's a test of self-regulation. And no, it doesn't affect this marker for pain. So maybe you think, okay, maybe it's, maybe it's not working, you know, as well as, well as we thought. And the exciting part is then, then we have this brain measure that's actually pretty robust to be able to, to rethink it. <laughs> you know, you can't fool it easily, at least in this way, right? It doesn't respond to whatever you're thinking at the moment. It's tracking pain. Um, and then the other side of that then is that you might, if you're interested in self-regulation, you might be disappointed. You go, oh, well, self-regulation didn't work. Maybe it's just our version of self-regulation, but or maybe it's more general. Maybe you can't really think your pain up and down, mm. right? But then what that does is that lets us go back and say, okay, if it's not this this pain signature, it must what what else is it? What is it that's tracking that? What mediates that effect? And then we can look for um, patterns of brain activity that mediate the effects of self-regulation. And, and what we find is a second pathway, you know, connecting the prefrontal cortex to the striatum, and and linking then to pain reports. <laughs> what people say yeah. so that could be a kind of second pathway that's involved in um involved in sort of fooling yourself for cognitive bias we don't know for sure but we actually think that it's a it's a pathway that is meaningful in terms of explaining the functional aspects of pain like how bad does it feel to you how um how significant is this for you how much should you avoid this in the future and that's the pathway that self-regulation is tapping into so now instead of sort of one pain system you know, we have at least two kinds of, of target pain-related systems. And one of them is a almost a internal. Is that co- kind of correct to think about it? Right. Well, yeah, the first one might start in the body and sort of prototypical pain, yeah. you know, networks. Well, I guess when I say internal, and, I mean and, Yeah, the second one starts in the brain. <laughs> it starts in yeah. your prefrontal cortex, <laughs> yeah. right, with your evaluation yeah. uh, of things. And, and maybe it, it doesn't go down to the spinal cord and affect, you know, no susception, affect your sensations, but it might well affect the functional significance of that pain for you. And in fact, in an, another study that we published at the end of last year in Nature Neuroscience, that was the finding. So this in this study, in a nutshell, it looks at pain avoidance. And we try to build essentially a, a neural model for what's happening when you make a choice, you get pain, <laughs> and then you avoid that choice in the future. And the nutshell you know, version of what's happening is that um, when you get pain that's worse than expected, you activate the, the perioqueductal gray in the midbrain. And that carries a prediction error signal. It says this was worse than expected. And that updates a representation of the value of that choice. <laughs> it says, oh, this was pretty bad. And that value representation, you know, is associated with the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. Uh, and so, so that's aggregating the value of these options over time saying what you should avoid and what you should what's okay to choose right and so that's the same system in broadly broad terms at least right that ventral medial prefrontal cortex in both studies is playing a role in the avoidance value of pain and that's the thing that you're really you can self-regulate you can turn up and down yeah does this has your research helped you regulate pain at home when you're (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in your life in terms of if you've exercised and then your back hurts or something <laughs> you know I, I yeah i guess i guess it has because I, I think i'm an i'm a natural skeptic because of the things i'm interested in like, like this question of you know what does self-regulation do if it can i accept my pain does it really matter right 
you know, I want to know the answer. And so it makes me a natural skeptic. So I can never quite, you know, believe it fully without really seeing data. And so every time, you know, if, if we or other people find results like this, it kind of convinces me. I'm like, huh. So maybe it really, maybe it really does matter. <laughs> you know, yeah. maybe, yeah, maybe if, um, you know, when my back was hurting the other day, you know, maybe uh, my psychological stance toward that really makes a difference, you know? And so I, I do practice, you know, acceptance, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and other strategies, you know, when that happens. So. Cool. Taking the research home with <laughs> Yeah, I like that because. Keeping you skeptical. Yeah, these, these things are, are things that, that, right, we we can apply in life, right? They do, they do matter because we all have this machinery. <laughs> Well, Tor, thank you so much for talking with us today. Really well, thanks. It. It's been fun. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.